Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. This is Intelligence Squared US, the nation's leading nonpartisan debate series, where the world's most influential minds debate the most important questions of our time, and you decide who carries the day. Progressive populism unifies and brings us all together. The Republican Party is institutionally and demographically stronger than it's been in decades. But if religion and belief in God is such a great force driving moral progress, how come it fails so abysmally? Science is very good, but it's half the equation. You need both. The U.S. does need to challenge China's unfair trade practices. Capitalism is not a blessing. It's unstable. It's unequal, it's undemocratic, and it's unsustainable ecologically. We are winning the battle against uh, famine, war, pestilence, and even death. That is thanks to capitalism. Our debate will go in three rounds, and then our audience will choose the winner. As always, if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. Our politics, our elections, and even the running of our government are all shaped by our two-party system, which has its critics who say that the system makes compromise just impossible, especially nowadays. But others say that the two-party system has its virtues. It provides stability and protects from extremes on both sides. Well, as election season heats up, we are asking this question, is the two-party system good for democracy. By the way, how did American politics get started down this two-party road? Well, before the debate, I sat down to talk about that with Joanne Freeman, who is a professor at Yale University. She is also co-host of the history podcast Backstory. Joanne's research over the years has focused extensively on early American politics. And in fact, some of her work ended up in the Broadway musical Hamilton. And she only found that out when she went to see the musical for the first time. And I was in the audience, and there's a dueling song in the musical, and I was very happy in the audience. There's a dueling song, and then it became a rules of dueling song, and I was really happy. It's a rules of dueling song. And then a lyric came out that was from my book. <laughs> and I, I was with a friend, and I said, that's my document. <laughs> so in the audience, I discovered. Then I met Lin-Manuel Miranda, and indeed, he had read my book. He fessed up immediately. Oh, yeah. The, yeah? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What was the lyric? It's about the doctor turning his back so he has deniability. And it was borrowed. The fact of it was from a document I found on the bottom of a box at the New York Historical Society. Okay, so you have, when, I, when I said that your, your approach to history reveals really interesting, fun stuff, I mean, you, you get to a very granular level of interactions between members of Congress. Radically violent stuff has been happening on the floor of Congress. Everyone knows probably the most famous incident, and that's the caning of abolitionist Senator Charles Sumner on the floor of the Senate. To within inches of his life. It was oh, yeah, no, serious. he was out of commission for two years, I think, afterwards. So it was, he gave a really rousing anti-slavery speech in which he insulted in some ways the South and South Carolina and some particular senators, and a kinsman of one of those insulted senators decided that he needed to redeem the name of his family and his state and of the South. So he waited until the Senate became mostly empty. Sumner was at his desk. They weren't in session. He was actually franking copies of his speech to send out. And its other fellow from South Carolina, Preston Brooks, walked in and announced that he was redeeming the name of the South and his family and just began to violently cane him. And the desks were bolted to the floor. So Sumner had a very hard time getting up, and he ultimately wrenched the desk out of the floor mm. in his attempt to get away from Preston Brooks. And, and did it have that impact? Did it actually affect policy and legislation? Yeah. Oh, no, for sure it did. I mean, there, there are So instances... the threat of violence on the Hall of Congress among representatives, the threat of violence had a lot to do with the lack of progress on... Yeah. 
they were armed, right? So they had Bowie knives, they had pistols. Um, there's a big fight in 1858 in which a Northerner says something opposed to slavery. A Southerner says, don't you say that here. And the Northerner says, he's a feisty one, says something like, I can say anything I want. It's a free house and I'm not going to listen to any damn slaveholder. Thank you very much. I needed the sound effect, the ooh. Um, so this Southerner walked up to him to throw a punch, and this other congressman beat him to it and slugged him, and the Southerner fell flat. And at this point, all the Southerners in the House began rushing. They all engaged in a huge brawl in the space in front of the Speaker's platform in the House of Representatives, throwing spittoons, punching each other, wow. you know. And it ended when one congressman grabbed someone's hair to throw a punch and his toupee came off. <laughs> <laughs> Which shows you that slapstick is eternal, because then everyone started laughing and it, it, it stopped. George Washington did not have a political party, and when he left office, he said, by the way, let's not have political parties, it's a terrible idea. Was that a common thought among the founding fathers? Yeah, I mean, part of the background here is, you know, it was so difficult to pull these states, which were kind of almost nation states when they were colonies, so hard to pull them together. So they assumed there'd be factions, they assumed there'd be partisan fighting, but they did not assume that there was, were going to be organized parties of any kind. And did they fear that? Yes, as a matter of fact, Why? they did. They assumed that an organized party is a group of people who are out to promote themselves and no one else. <laughs> no. Thank you for that sound effect, too. Yeah. <laughs> no, not true. But, but that, that was their assumption. So how soon did we get political parties? Well, the first real parties, when, like organized with banners and everything else, that's Andrew Jackson. So you get early on... Federalists and Republicans, Hamilton and Washington, Jefferson and Madison banging at each other. But no one's really happy about calling themselves a party. There's like a team dynamic which didn't exist without parties. There's something for the people who are in it. And then strategically, you know, sort of pragmatically, it's really useful for getting things done and getting a message out. Jackson's party was the Democratic Party. That's, I mean, our current Democratic Party, ultimately, that's, that's its lineage. People love to draw the straight line back. There are no straight lines <laughs> in American politics, no. Can you remind us all the name of your most recent book? It's called The Field of Blood, uh, <laughs> Violence in Congress and the Road to Civil War. And you found that phrase, Field of Blood, in your research? The phrase comes from a letter written to Charles Sumner. This friend of Sumner's, after the caning, says, essentially, I knew that something would happen on that field of blood, the floor of Congress. So that was kind of Hosanna for a historian. It was like, oh my gosh, not only is the violence not surprising, he expected it. Joanne Freeman, I want to thank you so much for thank coming by. Thank you so much thank for you. having me. Pleasure. Thank you. Here's one thing we can all agree upon. We are all deeply satisfied right now with how our political system is working, right? Oh, wait, right. There is all that polarization and those problematic primaries. And then those two parties, they're not disappointing anybody, but two parties, it's always been that way in the US. We have a politics built around two parties so much so that it's in our national DNA. And is that a good thing? Or is it a big part of what's not going so well right now? Well, we think in all of these questions, we have the makings of a debate. So let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, two cheers for two parties. I'm John Donvan. I stand between two teams of two who are experts in this topic, who have thought about this deeply, and who will argue for and against that resolution, two cheers for two parties. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our live audience here at the Dolby Cinema in San Francisco will vote to choose the winner, and if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. Let's meet our debaters first, starting with Yasha Munk. Hi, Asha. You are an associate professor at Johns Hopkins University. You're author of a book called The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. You have debated with us a bunch of times. Now, you're one of our more frequent debaters, and that's because we think you're so excellent at it. It's great <laughs> to have you back again. Thanks, Yasha Monk. Thank you so much for having me. And, Yasha, your partner is Norm Ornstein. Norm, we've been trying to get you for years on our debate stage. We are delighted. You're a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. You're a contributing editor at The Atlantic and chairman of the Campaign Legal Center. Norm, thanks so much for being here. Oh, what a delight, John. So that's our team arguing for the resolution. Two cheers for two parties. And we have two debaters arguing against it. First, please welcome Lee Drutman. 
Hi, Lee. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. You're a senior fellow at New America. You're co-host of the Politics in Question podcast. You're author of the new book, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. What a thrill to be here, John. Great to have you. And let's meet your teammate. Please welcome Catherine Gale. Catherine, you're the founder of Venn Innovations. That is a national nonpartisan political innovation group. You are also the co-author of a forthcoming book, The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. Again, sounds like interesting ideas and great to have you here, Catherine. Thrilled to be here. And those are our four debaters. Round one will be opening statements by each debater in turn. First, for the resolution, two cheers for two parties, resident scholar at American Enterprise Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, Norm Ornstein. I think we all agree that we are in dangerous, difficult, even perilous times. But the problem is not that we are in two-party time. We don't have two parties right now. The Republican Party has become an insurgent outlier. It's more of a cult than a party. And frankly, the biggest and most urgent thing we have to do in this country is to turn it back to being a problem-solving and norm-abiding party. We also think our problems are more cultural than they are structural. There's no question that we have polarized. But the bigger problem is that we have become tribalized in the society. We no longer view those on the other side as worthy adversaries, but as enemies trying to destroy our way of life. And people vote now more on the basis of their antipathy towards the enemy. The structures and the rules have been distorted by figures like Donald Trump, Bill Barr, and Mitch McConnell, who've demolished the norms. And to use the phrase of Daniel Patrick Moynihan, they have driven and defined deviancy down. Lee Drutman, in his terrific book, wrote about uh, the golden age in American life, the period from roughly the 1930s through the 1970s, when we had, as he puts it, in effect, a four-party system, not a two-party system. Democrats had roughly equal numbers of Southern uh, conservatives and Northern liberals. Republicans had Northeastern and West Coast moderates joined with a lot of conservatives, and they did form frequent bipartisan coalitions. But at the same time, as Lee acknowledges, they gave us Jim Crow and segregation, because a minority was able to have effectively a veto power, much like what we've seen in the Israeli system, where ultra-religious parties have been able to dominate policies that discomfort the vast majority of Israelis. Now, we agree with our opponents on the need for major structural reform. Ranked choice voting for Congress and for the presidency either eliminating or vastly changing the Electoral College and an enlargement in the House and changes in the money system in our politics. But we believe they have to be made within the structure of an existing system that's built around having two major parties. If you go back and look at what the framers set in place, they didn't want a parliamentary system. Congress, from the Latin word meaning to come together, not the French word parlay, question time, would debate and deliberate and organically reach a judgment that would get basically the legitimacy of the public. Now, it's not that our opponents want to upend our system and give us a parliamentary system, but they want a hybrid, a system where we keep much of the structure, but bring in proportional representation so that other parties cannot just join in, but actually have skin in the game, be a part of the governing process, including, as Lee has written, extremist parties. Imagine if we had this multi-party system and the Republican Party formed a coalition with a white supremacist party, which meant that they would get a series of cabinet seats and probably some ability to have control over policies that they cared about. Those don't fit what we want. We have more urgent needs with an existential threat to our political system. That's what we need to focus on. Thank you, Norm Ornstein. Opening statements continue right after this on Intelligence Squared U.S. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. 
I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. Before the break, we heard Norm Ornstein make his opening statement in support of our resolution by referencing a book called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. Well, that book was written by Lee Drutman, who now makes his opening statement against the resolution, Two Cheers for Two Parties. Like a lot of you, I'm very worried about American democracy. Here's our basic problem, and I think Norm and I agree on this. Our democracy is set up to require broad compromise. We have two parties that are roughly equally balanced, both trying to win an elusive, narrow majority, constantly describing the other side as the enemy, as un-American, as Norm has pointed out. It destroys the shared legitimacy, the shared sense of fairness on which democracy depends. We are in this hyper-partisan doom loop in which both parties fear what would happen if the other party gets into power because the two parties represent very different visions of America. We have one party, the Democrats, organized around urban America, cosmopolitan, multiracial, and we have one party, the Republicans, based around rural America, traditionalist, white. And those two parties, frankly... It's driving us all crazy. It doesn't work with our institutions, which are not set up to be narrow majoritarian. And it doesn't work with our brains, which are easily tripped into black and white, us versus them, binary thinking. It used to be that the parties had tremendous overlap, and it wasn't clear what the Democrats or Republicans stood for. But now, choice is incredibly high stakes. I I don't see how the Democrats get enough of, of a majority to actually... Uh, force the Republicans to moderate. And even if Democrats do move towards that, I don't think the Republican Party would moderate. I think the Republican Party would turn violent because we know what happens when parties feel like they have no legitimate path to power. They turn to other non-political means. All Western democracies are facing challenging winds of globalization, increasing conflict over national identity, urban versus rural, global versus local. If you vote for the resolution and say we should keep with two parties, you're voting to take a tremendous risk, even though we know what the two-party system is doing to our brains and how it just doesn't work with our political institution. You're hoping for a miracle. A multi-party system, you know, it would take some some big reforms to get there, but I think it would allow us to break that zero-sum hyper-partisanship that is really destroying our democracy. We know how democracies die. They die when hyperpartisanship takes over and when short-term gains overwhelm long-term stability. And that's what we see happening in Washington right now. I'm worried about what will happen in November. I'm worried about the illegitimacy of the results. And I, I think we are in very dangerous territory. So I urge you all, for the health of our democracy, vote against the motion and vote for a brighter future with more parties and more paths to a functioning, healthy democracy. Thank you all. Thank you, Lee Drutman. And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this resolution. Two cheers for two parties. You've heard the first two opening statements, and now on to the third. Debating in support of the motion, two cheers for two parties. Please welcome Yasha Munk, author of The People Versus Democracy. Ladies and gentlemen, Yasha Munk. It's very important to be exact about what we're debating today. What our side wants to convince you of is to give two cheers to the two-party system. Not not one cheer, not zero cheers, but not three cheers either. (laughs) The only way to actually break the two-party system is to change how we vote fundamentally so that you don't have a congressman in your district. You have political parties that really control how the political system works. So you vote not for a particular candidate, but for a political party, and that political party then gets seats in Congress in rough proportion to how many people voted for the party. That's called a system of proportional representation, and it nearly always produces a multi-party system. Now, when you look at systems of proportional representation around the world, you find that, unfortunately, they don't work any better than our two-party system. But we don't just have Donald Trump here in the United States. We have Viktor Orban in Hungary. We have Kaczynski in Poland. We have Recep Erdogan in Turkey. What do these countries have in common? They have systems of proportional representation. Proportional representation will not save us from the rise of authoritarian populism. Think Israel. Think Italy. 
Italy has had its political system for 75 years since the end of World War II. Do you know how many governments it has had? 61. 61 governments in 75 years. Because it is very, very difficult to broker a stable government when you have lots and lots of political parties, lots of backroom dealings, lots of local potentates who control a little share of the vote and can enter all kinds of corrupt deals. But if chaos is a famous and persistent problem of systems of proportional representation, too much stagnation and stability is a different one. So voters have very little control over what goes on. Now, what would that look like in the United States? We have lots of parties. Well, what parties do we have? We have on the right a theocratic party with 10 to 15% of the vote. We have a white supremacist party with 10 to 15% of the vote. Then we have a bunch of more reasonable parties. We have a kind of libertarian party, a kind of country club party, a kind of center-left party. And then we have on the left a socialist party led by Bernie Sanders, a deeply identitarian party, perhaps a number of them, one for Latinos, one for African-Americans, and so on and so forth. Lee rightly points out that the United States is much more diverse than other countries. But that precisely means that in a system of proportional representation, we would have even more parties, even more entrenched interests. And Americans are not used to this, to coalitions being brokered in back rooms between politicians. Two weeks after the election, we tell the voters who's going to be in government. Americans would rebel against that kind of political system. So I'm not going to give free cheers to the two-party system. It has deep problems. I mean, the United States has deep problems today. But I'm not even going to give two cheers to proportional representation because it deserves at best one. Thank you, Yasha Munk. The resolution again, two cheers for two parties. And here to make her statement against the resolution, please welcome Catherine Gale, founder of Venn Innovations. Catherine Gale. Raise your hands if you drink beer or wine. Ah, yes, a very fun group. Okay, now keep your hands up if you are, in general, quite satisfied with the choices that you have in the beer and wine marketplace. Okay, everybody's hands are still up. Keep your hands up if you vote. Engaged people, everybody's hand is up. And keep your hands up if you are quite satisfied with the choices that you have in the political marketplace. Oh, I see a lone dissenter out there, but otherwise those hands all went down. Which begs the question, why in America do we have 6,000 breweries and 3,000 wineries, and yet when it comes to our politics, we get to choose between what David Brooks describes as Soviet Refrigerator A or Soviet Refrigerator B? In the politics industry... We don't have healthy competition, we don't have innovation, and we don't have accountability. There's zero accountability because the customer, the voter, us, only has two choices. So the only thing that either the Democrats or the Republicans need to do to win is to convince the average voter to choose them as the lesser of two evils or because at least they say, therefore, what that voter believes. But in this two-party system... What neither side has to do is deliver results. Because no matter how disappointed you are, you still likely prefer what your side says therefore than what the one other choice says therefore. In any other industry this large, this thriving, with this much customer dissatisfaction and only two players, some entrepreneur would see it as a phenomenal business opportunity and create a new competitor to respond to what the customers wanted. But that doesn't happen in politics. Because it turns out that the Democrats and the Republicans work very well together in one particular way. To rig the rules of the game to protect themselves jointly from new competition. Said another way, politics isn't broken, it's fixed. <laughs> A quick example, the duopolies created fundraising rules that allow any of us to donate $855,000 every year to Democrats, Republicans, or both. But if you want to support an independent candidate challenging the duopoly, you're limited to five thousand four hundred dollars 
every two years. We can change the system by changing how we vote. It brings me, even in these difficult times, an enormous degree of optimism, and it all starts with recognizing that the two-party system is broken. So let's get rid of it, and we can start tonight. Please vote no on the motion, and yes to a democracy that works for us. Thank you, Catherine Gale. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is two cheers for two parties. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another directly. They also take questions from me and from you, members of our live audience. The team arguing for the resolution, Norm Ornstein and Yasha Monk, they say that the alternative of proportional representation would have enormous problems. A system that's larger than two parties would result in giving disproportionate power to potentially unsavory political movements such as white supremacy. Um, the team arguing against the resolution, Catherine Gale and Lee Drutman, they are arguing that the two-party system, in fact, turns politics into a zero-sum game. But they also believe that a multi-party system is possible, and they believe that it would be a more accurate representation of America's political diversity. So the core disagreement is on the nature of the solution. So I want to dig into that, but I want to start by going to you, Norm, and just taking on uh, Catherine's point that the, that the parties as they are now are effectively a duopoly cooperating to prevent a diversity of ideas and voices, almost anti-American. What do you think of that? As Catherine was talking about wine and beer, I was thinking, what if the wine industry governed us and governed itself and actually had to form a legislature. What would happen likely is that the French would join with the Americans to block the Italians from selling their wine, and we would have fewer choices. Having ranked choice voting, enabling parties to be out there and competing, but still ending up where you're making decisions, which more than likely would leave us with two parties but with a different kind of competition, would work for me. If we have a president and a separate Congress, and we have multiple parties, we're going to have to make massive changes to make sure that a presidential election would actually result in somebody with a majority winning. Now, we have a real problem now with the Electoral College, but doing that and then having multiple parties in Congress, forming coalitions, having a president find the ability to actually work out a, uh, a coalition that would work, I think would be more difficult. And as Yasha said, what you're more likely to get are corrupt bargains and bringing extremists into the system doesn't mean that they're going to be in the tent and content with working within the system. They're going to make demands that would make governing more difficult. Lee, to respond? Um, yeah, so the, the question is whether presidentialism can work with a multi-party system. Uh, now, what we have now are two possible Congresses, one in which the opposing party to the president is in Congress, and then we have gridlock and, and opposition, and everything winds up being done in the executive branch. The other option, the government which is unified, in which case we have no separation of powers. We have a party that just lets the president do what, what he or she wants. In a multi-party Congress with a president, you would have, certainly you'd have to build coalitions, but it would mean that there was neither permanent gridlock nor a blank check. It might be that the, the, we'd have a Congress that actually might have voted to impeach Trump because not all of them depended on being aligned with Trump to get reelected. Yasha? Well, you have examples of that in Latin America. You have these really weird hybrid political systems where you have a president who is popularly elected, and then you have a Congress, which is like seven different political parties, none of which are necessarily related to the president. And what you get is chaos, because the president can never agree with Congress or the parliament. You can never actually pass any laws. You get these strongmen who are coming in and saying, none of this is working. We always have political rancor. We can never actually pass any laws. What you need to do is just to give all of the power to me so I can sideline Congress and do what I want. We need to essentially find a majority in one way or another. That is the big disanalogy to this lovely example of the beer and wine industry. You can have one beer, you can have the next beer, you can have a different wine. We don't have to agree. In order to pass laws, you have to broker majorities. So where do you want to do that? 
by giving people a choice between two parties and seeing which of them is more popular and more genuinely popular, or by giving seven parties a little bit of political power, sending them all off into dark rooms and having them make weird deals with each other that we have no control over. So, Catherine, your beer wine test was used against you. <laughs> so, uh, that's take okay, because you used it wrong. <laughs> you didn't quite understand. Yeah, you used it wrong, so, so. Yeah. We need to think about this differently. The point of beer and wine example is to understand the value of competition, that it forces innovation. The problem with our current system is not just that we have two parties, but that they are guaranteed to continue to remain the only two parties we have when 90% of people are not phenomenally satisfied. So what we want to put into the industry is the threat of new competition that pushes competitors in any industry to innovate and to respond and to solve problems. And that's what we need to change in our political system. And it doesn't take proportional representation to do that. Okay. I want to go to audience questions in just a moment. Norm, um, your opponents have made the point that the choices presented by the two parties represent choices that many, many Americans wouldn't make if they had other choices, that the parties are at this point are so extreme and polarized that they don't really represent the American public's diversity. What's your response to that? This is going to take a long time. What we need to do is focus on how we can bring back a legitimate two-party system. We need to look at ways in which we can have a Republican Party that's a party again. And for a long time, we did have parties. Actually, there were instances with United Government when uh, the congressional leaders did real oversight and put some checks on corruption or on maladministration or on bad governance. That we don't have now. We need to work at it. If we could snap our fingers and bring about the kinds of structural changes that Lee at least wants, it's not going to fit within our culture. All these other countries that have these kinds of systems are going through the same kind of threat from right-wing populism, dangers of uh, immigration that are bringing out racial divisions that we have had for a long time that haven't existed before. And to think that by causing our culture to go through an enormous upheaval to bring in a bunch of other parties, many of which would be, as Yasha laid out, really extreme parties, would not work. Let me take that particular criticism to, to your opponents. Uh, Leo or Catherine, the argument here being made that the door would be open to quite unsavory political players. Right. So we have two structural problems. One is we have primaries, party primaries, and they push elected representatives to the right and to the left. And then they can't come together in Washington, D.C. to solve any problems because they are going to get primaried. How we change the system now is we get rid of partisan primaries, and instead we have a single, open, everybody runs on the same ballot, and the top five vote-getters advance to the general election. So now you don't automatically lose your primary in our system just by voting yes on bipartisan compromise legislation. And the second thing we do is we institute ranked choice voting in the general election. So we will elect someone with the greatest appeal to the most number of voters. But most important, getting rid of the way we currently vote, plurality voting, first-past-the-post voting, and substituting ranked choice voting is what lowers the barrier to entry for new competition. And now you won't splinter these votes and let the extremists in, but everybody's views can be represented, and we still now elect someone who's responsive to the entire district. Is the two-party system good for democracy? We'll hear questions from the audience in just a moment. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. A few minutes ago, Yasha Monk described extremism in countries that have proportional representation. Here's Lee Drutman to respond. So 
Yasha paints a very dark picture of proportional representation systems that are not doing so well. I'm I think not he sure. says it's pretty much all of them, isn't it? Well, he doesn't talk about Ireland. He doesn't talk about New Zealand, Denmark, Sweden, Netherlands, but a lot of countries that are not being overrun by populists. Those parties do exist, but government coalitions don't include those parties. Now, there is some extremism. There's always going to be some extremism in society. We have a strange party system in which Donald Trump ran as a Republican. He got about 30% of the vote in the primary. About 40% of the people are Republicans. So Donald Trump is about a 12% party, as many populist, far-right populist parties in Western Europe are. By winning the plurality of a plurality, Donald Trump becomes president, takes over an entire Republican party, and now we have one party that, as Norm has described, has gone to a very extreme place. That is the danger of a two-party system. A two-party system is good at managing extremism if extremism is just 5% or 10%, but when it gets to be 15%, it can gain total power, and that's a tremendous danger of a two-party system. Sweden has a party by the name of Sweden Democrats, an avowed neo-Nazi party. I'm not being hyperbolic. I mean, shaved hat, swastika flag, neo-Nazis. That party today is the biggest party in Sweden, according to opinion polls. The nice point of harmony and agreement, the primary system in the United States is a problem. It allows people with 25-30% of the vote within a primary to become the party's nominee. The people who participate are only about 10% of the U.S. population. In order to fix that, you simply have to do some of the things that Catherine talked about, which is, for example, open primaries to have a system of a single transferable vote, which means that if my preferred candidate doesn't, isn't among the top, I can redistribute my votes towards my second preferred candidate, and that avoids the most extreme candidate winning if that's not actually what people want. But that would still give you a two-party system. Ma'am? And if you can tell us at least your first name, appreciate it. My first name is Ina. Um, both sides have mentioned ranked choice voting as some kind of an improvement. We have ranked choice voting here in San Francisco, and it has proven to be confusing. And I'm going to be kind and say that many of the results are dysfunctional. So would you please explain how you think that ranked choice voting is going to be any kind of an improvement? Can we be very brief and... I have a feeling you may have shared views, and I don't want to chew up, but who would like to take it? Catherine, right. you would want to take that first, and I'll come back. Okay. What we're proposing is ranked choice voting in general elections for Congress, and this is after a primary where you have five candidates advancing. So that gets rid of this challenge that ranked choice voting is confusing because we're not running, as they are in some of these municipal elections, 10, 12 candidates on the ballot. We've narrowed it down the right amount to have the diversity of ideas and candidates in the race that contributes the candidate who's elected to their ability to deliver results once they're in Washington, D.C., because they're responding to the needs of the entire district. I don't spend time recommending ranked choice voting for municipal elections. It's going to be very effective for reducing the polarization and gridlock in Congress. Okay. Again, given neither side is making ranked choice voting the heart of your argument, do you I, want to add anything? I, I would like to very briefly, because I actually sure. think it illustrates a key part of my argument, which is that when I'm in the United States, people say, our electoral system sucks, let's have a different electoral system. And when I go to any of your countries that have that electoral system, and what do people tell me there? Our electoral system sucks. Let's have an electoral system more like that of the United States. The real point that you're making is it's easy to sit here and say, let's get rid of a two-party system. We'll have an imaginary, wonderful electoral system that solves all of our problems. Our problems are not due to our specific electoral system. They're to much deeper problems. And that's why it doesn't matter if you go here, Germany, anywhere, you have big problems. Ma'am? Hi, my name is Jay. Um, the last five elections have been wave elections where people are dissatisfied with both parties. And it seems to me that there is this impatience for change in Washington. And yet our founding fathers created a government that was by design very deliberative and slow and a government of checks and balances. Is there anything that could possibly be done right away? Barring revolution, is there a way to quickly get away from a two-party system? Uh, all right. So I'm going to go to the side that's arguing for... The, it's a question about the practicality, the pragmatism of what you're arguing. Lee, we haven't heard from you in a bit. If you want to take it, and then Catherine can join you. 
Two-thirds of Americans say we ought to have more than two parties, so I think it would be widely supported. Congress could pass legislation, could pass it tomorrow. States can start taking actions on their own. It's up to all of us to decide what we want. It's just understanding that the two-party system is not working. It's breaking our democracy. It's driving us all crazy. And frankly, we ought to have more choices. We do have more than two parties. We have libertarians and we have the Green Party and the Communist Party and the Socialist Party and Democratic Socialists. When you're saying we have only two parties... We have, we have t- only two effective parties because we have a winner-take-all plurality first-past-the-post system that renders third parties as spoilers and pushes them to the fringes where they only attract fringes. Let, well, let's as, give as we, an example yeah, of right. how this plays out in the real world. So earlier this spring, Howard Schultz, the former CEO of Starbucks, who was widely admired as a business leader, decided that he would consider running as an independent for president. And the Democrats were livid because they believed that if Howard Schultz ran as an independent, he would take votes away from the eventual Democratic nominee and inadvertently then help reelect Donald Trump. And in our current system, that may well be true. We need to implement the system of ranked choice voting in our general elections in order that competitors like Howard Schultz, Jill Stein, or Gary Johnson can have electoral opportunities because even if they don't win... When you have healthy competition, with more competition, you get results quickly. Perot ran in 92. He was the last uh, third-party candidate to be on a debate stage. He only got 19% of the vote, but what did we get? Balanced budgets out of the Clinton administration because neither the Republicans nor the Democrats wanted to cede that 19%, all those people who voted for Perot's charts on the debt and deficit, to a nascent third party. Norm, going back to the... the, Going back to the... uh, question how how realistic is that these changes could happen short of a revolution in a relatively short period of time? There are some things that could be done, and there are things that don't require constitutional amendments. Democratic president with a Senate, say with 53 Democrats, you could pass uh, some version of what they call H.R. 1 that would give us some campaign finance reform that could add multi-member districts, which is basically blocked by a 1967 law. You could expand the size of the House, which was capped at 435 because the racists in the South knew that if you expanded the numbers the way we'd done every 10 years otherwise, uh, they would lose power. And I would just add that at the presidential level, we now have this pernicious impact of the Jill Steins, who got a lot of support from Russia. Why? Because it was pulling votes away and distorting outcomes. That can be done by laws in individual states. If you have ranked choice voting, it doesn't give you anything other than a two-party system. It allows people to say, hey, my first voice goes to Jill Stein, but obviously she's not going to get 30 or 40% of the vote, so it's going to get eliminated and redistributed to the Democratic candidate. What ranked choice voting allows you to do is to have some expression of your strong preferences if you have more extreme political views, but we would still effectively have two parties. Sir. Uh, I'm Andrew. When you impose your free market rules, we don't have a multitude of search engines, for example, or social media companies. So what I fear more than multi-party system is a uni-party system. What is to ensure against that if you impose your market rules and create this where you have a winner-take-all system and single Google-style or Facebook-style winners? This is really interesting. What really matters? Is it how many parties we have? Or is it what whoever is elected gets done? What we'll get with this free market politics, which I do sometimes call it, is competition that delivers what the voters want. So if the voters don't want a uniparty, we won't have one. And the voters don't want that because we're already talking about how much division there is here. If you're going to have a political monopoly, that means you're going to have an authoritarian system, which none of us is proposing here. A lot of the things that we're talking about, we agree on. I would like to see more competition and uh, some form of ranked choice voting. But, you know, a David Duke now is outside the political system. If we have a number of parties and we're getting coalitions and the David Duke party is there inside the tent... I don't think that's going to be a healthy process. I don't think that's going to lead to more competition leading to better outcomes. I think it can lead, as we've seen in so many other countries, to more pernicious outcomes. 
We just happen to believe that if you try and make a radical transformation that adds a lot more parties, the unintended consequences, the downsides that we have seen play out in so many other countries are going to lead us down a bad path. That concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is two cheers for two parties. Now we move on to round three. Round three will be in closing statements arguing for the resolution, two cheers for two parties. Here is Norm Ornstein, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. We're not in a very good place in the United States right now. But to imagine that if we somehow either could wave a magic wand or even make a series of fundamental structural changes in the way our political system operates and introduce a lot of additional parties, they're going to form coalitions inside, but it's going to mean, as Yasha said, a whole series of more extreme parties that would suddenly have a lot more leverage. I'd like to see those structural reforms, but I also think that we need to focus on something else which is more fundamental, which is the toxic culture that we have right now, tribal media. The degree to which a Fox News has had an impact on the structure of debate in the society, on climate change, basically pushing us in a direction where we can't even have a debate about it, which has also, by the way, done more to bring us Brexit and encourage the fires in Australia than anybody else, and that's spreading. We have coarsened our culture where anything is in bounds now. Bullying in schools is way up because of the example that we see with the president. We need to focus our attention finding a way to repair our culture and move this back to a situation where we can actually have some reasoned debate about the important things that matter and view this as a country of people together. Thank you, Norm Ornstein. The resolution, again, two cheers for two parties here to make his closing statement against the resolution. Lee Drutman, author of Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop. James Madison wrote a brilliant essay, Federalist Number 10, that lays out the thinking behind the structure of our political system. Madison encountered this problem. He said, there are a lot of factions in society. To extinguish them would be the death of liberty. How are we going to have a political system in which they can all work together? The framers were afraid of political parties because they thought there would only be two. One party would be trying to get a majority and oppress the minority party, and the minority party would fear that the system was illegitimate, and we'd have the collapse of democracy. We'd have a civil war. Had they anticipated that parties would be inevitable, I think they would have wanted a multi-party democracy, because a multi-party democracy requires compromise, negotiation, coalition building, and allows the coalitions to be fluid, so that no one side feels like if the other side gets into power, their side is going to be oppressed. And it's true that a more proportional system might allow some more extremist parties. But I think there is a danger in suppressing extremism until it builds up and it builds up and it takes over one of the two major parties. And that, I fear, is the situation that we are in now. So for the health of the future of democracy, let's break the two-party doom loop. Let's give people more choices and get a system in which people can actually feel enthusiastic about the options that they have rather than holding their nose, voting for the lesser of two evils, and fearing that if their side loses, the fate of our country is at an end. Thank you, Lee Drutman. The resolution again, two cheers for two parties. Here to make his closing statement in support of the resolution, Yasha Monk, author of The People Versus Democracy. It's very easy to say our political system is so broken. If only we had one over there. And then you go to the people who have a system over there and they say, well, if only we had a system of majoritarian first past the post like we have in the United States. The basic truth is that electoral systems give you trade-offs. Either you have relatively limited choice, as you do in the United States, but you know who's going to form the government if you vote for the Democrats or if you vote for the Republicans or you have a system of proportional representation where you vote for a political party, you have more choice, you have all the choice of beer, but you have no idea what government they're going to form once you've given them your vote. And that's not an abstract question for me, because I've been thinking about what's happened in Germany in the state of Thuringia. Now, Germany is supposed to be one of the functional PR systems, but people there who voted for perfectly decent moderate parties like Angela Merkel's Christian Democrats found they elected a no-name politician 
prime minister of a state with the support of the alternative for Germany, with the support of the most extreme AFD politician who's famous for saying that Germans need to make a 180-degree turn in the memory of World War II. So, yes, our system has deep problems. I don't give it three cheers, I give it two cheers. But don't think that proportional representation is going to solve those problems. Thank you, Yashima. And our final speaker making her closing statement against the resolution, Catherine Gale, founder of Venn Innovations. So in 2012, my daughter, Alexandra, said to me, Mommy, I think I'm a Remocrat or maybe a Republican. She knew intuitively that we needed more than two choices, and she was only six. Why is this all such a mess when I'm growing up? Why does this have to happen to us now? And then sort of, why are you guys screwing it up? My son, who is now just two, by the time he was born, I really understood about these dangers of two parties, and I promised him and promised my daughter that I would spend the rest of my life working for these political changes. A vote for the motion tonight is a vote for more of what we've been getting, more of what we weren't satisfied with. It's a vote for more of the same for Alexandra, Teddy, and all of your children as well. It doesn't have to be like this. We can leave the doom loop of two-party politics behind, the guaranteed positions of these two parties by these simple political innovations which we can enact on a state-by-state basis. America was founded on the greatest political innovation of modern times. And once again, that kind of political innovation is the key to our future. Say yes to the great American experiment and say no to the two-party system and bring back the vibrancy of a competitive democracy. Thank you, Catherine Dale. And that concludes closing statements. All right, I have the final results. You have been asked to vote twice on the resolution. Two cheers for two parties. I want to remind you again, it's the difference between the first and the second vote that determines our winners. Here's how it played out. On the first vote, on the resolution, two cheers for two parties. 35% of you agreed. 27% of you were against the sentiment of this resolution. And 38% were undecided. First results. Now let's look at the second results. In the second result for the team who's uh, arguing for the resolution, again, their first vote was 35%. Their second vote was 65%. They pulled up 30 percentage points, which is now the number to beat. The team arguing against the resolution, they went from 27% to 28%. They pulled up one percentage point, which is not enough. The team uh, arguing for the resolution, two cheers for two parties, named our winners. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Intelligence Squared U.S. The debate you just heard was recorded live at Dolby Lab Cinema in San Francisco with generous support from the Dolby family. Claire Connor is CEO of Intelligence Squared U.S. Amy Kraft is our chief of staff. Shale Mara is director of editorial. Connor Kerfman is our creative and marketing strategist. Jen Zelmer is our senior researcher. Rob Christensen and Aaron Dalton are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is our audio engineer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman, and I'm your host, John Donvan. <laughs>